Preaching lesson today is Psalm 51, 1 through 17. We'll be using the Psalter. It is number 785 in the back of your hymnals. We'll be doing it responsibly with sung response number one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless in your judgment. truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Make me here with joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Deliver me from death, O God, God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. For you have no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. It's a joy for me to be able to preach this morning. Um, I'm filling in for Pastor Lou. She's in uh, McCurdy in New Mexico. They made it safely. 
Uh, they're going to worship there. They have some other events for today, getting ready for a full and busy week of ministry and service. So we would ask that you continue to keep our whole team in prayer, that they might truly be the blessing God intends for them to be. And then the, the, the best part is that they will be enriched and receive blessing from those that they serve. It's always a joy for that. Uh, you probably guessed that I was preaching when you looked at the hymns today because there were two Fanny Crosby songs. They're sort of my favorites. And just a little aside, you really do want to be here to hear the concert on October the 6th. That conversations piece is just really a, a moving and important piece of music. And then we've actually had a piece commissioned, and there are two more Fanny Crosby songs as part of You can't go wrong. So make sure you put that on your calendar. I just wanted to make sure you heard that. Will you bow with me now for a moment of prayer? Dear God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A young man had always wanted a parrot, and finally his girlfriend found one and gave it to him as a gift. It was a beautiful bird, just exactly what he had always wanted, except it could talk. Now, that's a good thing, right? Except it had a vile, filthy mouth. It was obstinate. It was, it was kind of mean-spirited. And the young man was worried, and he thought, well, perhaps I, I'll go online and see if I can get some techniques and do some retraining uh, and, and help this bird's behavior. So he tried speaking only gentle and pleasant words around the bird. Didn't help. He tried quiet music, that didn't help. Kept the lights low. The bird was just vile, everything that he said. So this young man tried everything he could. One day he had a particularly bad day at work. He came home from work and the bird was already at it, squawking and cursing. And he came in and, and, he, and he said some calm words. The bird just kept going. Finally, he just yelled at the bird. And the bird yelled right back at him. And he had had enough, and he took the bird and he shook it. Well, that really got its feathers riled up. <laughs> he said things he didn't even know, the young man didn't even know he knew. And finally, in exasperation, he picks up the bird, and he goes over and he puts it in the freezer to cool it down a little bit. <laughs> didn't slam the door, just closed it. And the bird goes ballistic, screeching and clawing. And the words were just unbelievable. The man stood back and this bird just going crazy. And all of a sudden, it's quiet. Not a sound. And he got a little afraid. He thought, well, maybe he had gone too far. And so he goes over and he, and he opens the door of the freezer and he gently puts his hand in. And the bird just steps out on his finger and looks right up at him and he says, apparently, my behavior and my language has been distasteful to you and, and I am sincerely sorry. <laughs> I will do everything I can to make sure this never happens again. <laughs> and the man is dumbfounded, he doesn't know what to say and before he can say anything, the little bird, with a glance over his shoulder to the freezer, looks back and he says, and sir, could I be so bold as to ask, what did the turkey do? <laughs> mm. 
The sermon today is about <laughs> repentance. <laughs> repentance includes sincere regret or remorse. Bird had that. Contrition. Some shame and guilt. You can see it in these little wings. It also implies a, a change in direction, a 180-degree change in behavior, and that's what he promised. On the surface, repentance seems pretty straightforward. But most of us would have to agree that saying that one simple phrase can be one of the most difficult phrases to say. You know, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Psychotherapist, educator, and researcher Richard Jolson, writing in Psychology Today, reports that, that many people experience offering an apology as a sign of weakness. Now, interestingly, when these same people were asked how they viewed an apology coming from someone else if they thought it was a sign of weakness, they said, oh no, we don't see that as a sign of weakness at all, but rather it's the right and the responsible thing to do. Remarkably, some of them even went on to say that they thought it was really a sign of strength and maturity when the apology was offered by the other person. But they still, all of them, felt that it was unacceptable as an admission of defeat for themselves or weakness when the, the apology was theirs to offer to someone else. Our scripture lesson for today, Psalm 51, is usually attributed to King David. Now, as you read that psalm, one might think that David really understood uh, how to uh, repent, that it came fairly easily for the singer king, as he asks for forgiveness with these beautiful, familiar words, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, wash out my transgressions. However, when we look at the rest of the story, we discover that it literally took an act of God to get the philandering king to admit the error of his ways. The historical background for Psalm 51 is found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You can read that this afternoon. David, in residence in Jerusalem while his armies are battling the Ammonites, observes Bathsheba, the wife of one of his generals, bathing on her rooftop. David sends for her, has intercourse with her, and then conspires to have her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. And David thinks that he's gotten off scot-free until the act of God. God sends Nathan, the prophet, to offer a little parable to the mighty king you know, the one about the selfish rich man who seizes his neighbor's poor little pet lamb and has him butchered and served to the out-of-town guests? David is infuriated at the injustice, the obvious injustice of the situation. To which Nathan replies, you are that man. The implications then are lifted for David related to what he has done to Bathsheba and Uriah. And David's only words are, I have sinned against you, O God. And it is entirely appropriate for us in this day and age 
to add, and I have sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all the people of Israel. You see, Bathsheba was in her rightful place. She's having the ritual bath required, after, required by law after her period. David, on the other hand, is not where he is supposed to be. See, there's a battle going on, and, and he's not at the head of his troops. That's what the kingly role requires. Moreover, he takes the opportunity provided by his literal dereliction of duty to spy on a woman who's just taking care of her private needs. Bathsheba is innocent of wrongdoing, even to the point of obeying the dictates of a king at the cost of her own peace of mind. Like many in society, she responds to the voice of authority because that's what she has to do. Because of the hierarchical structure, she's on the bottom. When her abuse is compounded by an unwanted pregnancy, Bathsheba turns the only place she can. She turns to David for help and is victimized further as her husband Uriah, at David's planning, is murdered. Bathsheba, as a woman in her society, was powerless to call David to account for what he had done to her. Now, whether it is recorded or not, God saw what had been done to Bathsheba because she, too, is a child of God with all the rights and privileges of God's favor. And any word that speaks of divine justice is also directed to all who have been abused and offers them justice, whether or not they are called out by name. See, part of the message and the work of this passage is the truth that God seeks and demands justice for all his people. Appropriately, then, we must read Psalm 51 as David's confession, his plea for forgiveness. Psalm 51 technically is classified as a, an individual lament, which means that it's a single voice that cries out to God for deliverance. The psalm singer David begins with four pleas to God in the imperative voice. Have mercy, blot out, wash me, cleanse me introducing that appropriate language about cleaning and cleansing that runs throughout the psalm. The psalmist then seeks cleansing from my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. These three, by the way, are the most common words used in the Hebrew Bible to describe acts committed against God and humankind. It is interesting to note that each of those three share the same basic root meaning. Transgression means to go against, to rebel. Iniquity means to bend, to twist. And sin means to miss the mark. And when we consider the heinous act of David, the triple plea is a beginning, at least, of an appropriate response to what he has done. There just aren't any excuses for David's behavior. So he simply throws himself on the essential character of God, who always exhibits hesed, or steadfast love, and abundant mercy, Raham. Now, hesed is really kind of a difficult word to render into English. It, it has to do with the relationship between two parties of an agreement or a covenant. Think about God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised that the Israelites would be treasured as a possession of God, they only were called to keep God's covenantal stipulations. 
hesed has to do with this sacred agreement, with the sacred relationship between God and God's people, and acknowledging this outward-focused, steadfast love of Yahweh toward all of his creation. The word translated mercy in Psalm 51 is derived from the Hebrew root Raham, which in its noun form means womb. Think about it. God's mercy then is closely tied to the concept of womb love, the love a mother feels for her yet-to-be-born child. Verse 6, the psalmist affirms that rather than dealing in transgression, guilt, and sin, God delights in truth as he bestows wisdom. But the psalmist realizes the amount of his transgression and moves again back to the original theme, purge me and I'll be clean, wash me, I'll be whiter than snow, because the psalmist longs to hear joy and gladness and once again to be able to rejoice. The singer returns to the language of cleansing and implores God, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Psalm 51 is a heartfelt cry to God from one who has committed unspeakable sin in the eyes of God. Now, the particulars are not noted, but God knows the details. But David sinned big, and he had to repent big. The words of Psalm 51 are fitting for the great king of ancient Israel. They are words that are also fitting for worshipers in the 21st century. Now, our sins may not be as public and as blatant as David, but all of us fall short of living in the steadfast love and the mercy of God. May we be as repentant as David and as willing to come to God for cleansing. So when we find ourselves in a situation like David, apologies and repentance are in order. So, what are the elements of a true apology? Back again to Dr. Jolson in Psychology Today in the article. He gives us some practical suggestions for a true apology that is designed to help repair both the relationship as well as the re reputation of the wrongdoer. And the guidelines are fairly straightforward. You might want to just jot them down. Number one, accept responsibility for the negative impact that your action had on the other person so that the apology will be sincere and therefore well-received. So own up to it. Number two, be specific with your apology so that you are directly acknowledging what you did wrong and not just generalizing or being vague. Something happened, you got to own up to it and name it. Number three, be empathetic. In other words, let the offended person know that you appreciate the impact of your wrongdoing on them. And this part of the, the apology is very important. Because at this point, you must, need, you must be prepared to listen. We literally cannot assume that we know what the other person is feeling. So it's important to listen attentively with all the active listening skills that you know without interrupting in order to allow the other person to sell what's on their heart and 
so they know that they've been heard. And number four, offer assurance that you'll make every effort to ensure that your offensive words or actions will never be repeated. And this requires what's called consistent change of behavior. And that's where the work comes in. It's about 180 degree turning around, changing behavior. The little parrot understood how important that was. And when we find ourselves in a situation like David, how do we repent before God? That's an important part. Well, the good news is, Scripture is here for us to use. It's completely appropriate for us to use the psalm as our own prayer, to, to use the words of the psalmist to describe the deep feelings of our own hearts. It's a prayer for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. But how many times do we say to ourselves or we hear others say, my sin's too great, and I'm not even worthy to approach God. I'm no king after God's own heart. Why would God care about a puny little sinner like me? Remember how we began our service today? Jennifer read for us the gospel lesson, Luke 15. It's actually a collection of three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. I want to just look at the first two. That's what the folks who prepared the lectionary suggested would match up with this psalm. Two parables. Eugene Peterson, commentator and scholar, has described parables as narrative time bombs. Now, these two parables from Luke each have the potential to disrupt, to surprise, to help us rethink our original notions about religious life, narrative time bombs, in other words. But I want to slow down and make sure we catch all of the meaning. The context for these three parables and the two that we're going to look at is imperative that we understand it. Jesus is upsetting the religious authorities. Now, we, we kind of know this, but it's important to remind ourselves that these scribes and Pharisees aren't bad folks. They're actually folks who really cared about their faith and about the religious life. They're the first century equivalent of our church board members, our church trustees, our Sunday school teachers. And interestingly, this crowd of folks is not upset about the things Jesus is saying, but rather they're upset because of the company he keeps. You know, who he's hanging out with, who he's talking to, and most notoriously, who he's sharing meals with. Now, this last part, eating, is important. Because table fellowship implies a certain familiarity, almost an intimacy when you go into someone's home and sit down and have a meal under their, at their table. And the folks Jesus is eating with literally are the lowest of the low, the tax collectors. You know, those turncoat locals who make their living by squeezing their neighbors on behalf of the hated Roman Empire. 
And then all the sinners, that broad category, category reserved for all those whose lifestyle has literally put them on the, beyond the bounds of polite society. And Jesus is carousing with all of them. As Luke tells it, Jesus is attracting the ne'er-do-wells in droves and, 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 and he's driving the respectable religious authorities a little bonkers. And so he tells both groups, apparently, some of these parables. Now again, let's be careful. We're sometimes so eager to read the parables as puzzles that we sometimes miss the, the absolute ridiculous, biting irony because when Jesus says, now, which one of you, and then goes on to paint the scenario, most of us just take him at face value. But think about it. Think about it for you. Which one of us, quite honestly, if we owned a hundred sheep and lost one, would put the, the other 99 at risk to go and search for one stray sheep? Because that's what Jesus is really asking. Now, we assume and have maybe created in our minds the many times we've read this parable that the 99 are, are put together, you know, pulled together and taken to a nice little clean sheep pen and, and taken away and cared for. And then the shepherd goes out looking. But Jesus says, which of you would leave the 99 in the wilderness? You know where they could get lost and go astray. Or they themselves could become prey of wolves so quick that you couldn't even say a little Bo Peep has lost her sheep, they'd be gone. Framed that way, the answer to Jesus' question is an obvious nobody. Nobody is quite that stupid or reckless or, or foolhardy to leave 99 perfectly healthy, intact sheep and go after the one who's gone astray. Nope, you just cut your losses and move on. At least that's what a shepherd with any sense common sense would do. Consider parable number two. Now this one makes a little more sense at first. If you only had ten coins, you lost one. Well, of course, you'd search and you'd sweep and you'd search and you'd sweep and, until you found it. But once you found it, would you really call all your friends and invite them to come to rejoice? After all, you don't invite your neighbors over to rejoice, that is to celebrate without going to the refrigerator, getting out all the snacks, and then the beverages, and then they'll probably want to stay for the meal. So let's try that again. Which one of you would literally search all night for one silver coin and then spend probably twice that much in celebrating with your friends? Again, the obvious answer Jesus is going for is nobody. At least nobody with any common sense. But that's just it, you see. When it comes to God's children, God's lost, confused, hurting children, and that's you and me, by the way, God has no sense. God would risk everything to find one of them, to find one of us. And having found a lost and beloved child, give everything again to celebrate there's only one kind of word for this behavior, desperate. That's right. God is desperately in love with each of you and with all of his children. Desperate to find us, 
desperate to redeem us, desperate to draw us back into God's abiding, abundant, steadfast love through his heart that is filled with mercy. There is a saying about parenthood that I've always found incredibly, though painfully, true. A parent is only as happy as his or her least happy child. Hmm. Now think about that. Think about that in relationship to God, our heavenly parent. No wonder Jesus says there is more joy in heaven when a single sinner repents than not over the 99 righteous. The more lost a person is, the greater the cause for celebration one is found. Well, think about it. It's good news when you break your arm and you go to the hospital and you get a cast and you come home from the hospital. That's good news. But it's really great, good, wonderful news when after you've been in the hospital and they send you home and say, your cancer is gone. And so, God comes in Jesus searching for all of God's lost children and inviting those of us who have been found to do the same. Because when you think about it, when you're lost, at least according to these parables, there's not much you can do. Jesus doesn't set out a formula about repenting first or, or set down four spiritual rules or even compose a sinner's prayer for us to recite. Probably because Jesus figures that often you don't even know you're lost in the first place. Remember snub, uh, smug King David? He didn't think he was lost. He thought he was... Well. But you do know when you've been found or when you've been found out. Sometimes, in fact, it's only when you're found you realize that you were lost in the first place, which means, oddly, that while there's nothing to do while you're lost, that there are all kinds of things that you are called to do and need to do once you've been found, like, like tell and shout and give thanks in a word to rejoice. The primary character of the Christian life from this point of view isn't morality or repentance or discipline or obedience or any of the hundred things that we might suspect. Now, don't get me wrong, all these things are good things, not just primary. They're just not primary. What seems to be primary here is this joy. Joy that comes from knowing that though you were once lost, now you're found. I think that's what the Pharisees forgot. How incredibly, unbelievably joyful it is to be, to be sought after, to be found, and to be loved by a devoted, desperate parent. They remember the importance of obedience and discipline and morality and the like, but they forget that unbounded joy of being found. It was Martin Luther who said of Psalm 51, knowledge of this psalm is necessary and useful in many ways. It contains instructions about the chief parts of our religion, about repentance and sin and grace and justification, as well as about the worship that we ought to render to God. These are divine and heavenly doctrines, and unless they are taught by the Great Spirit, they cannot enter into the heart of humankind. So, 
The easy way for all of us to journey through life would be to simply travel lightly and just forget we have any knowledge of Psalm 51 at all and just go on ignoring and hiding those unpolished places in our lives. But then there's that Luke lesson. Truth is, God won't allow us to do that. Because you see, God is desperately in love with us. God is searching and longing and loving all of God's children. Psalm 51 is one of those bold and courageous prayers that contains all the promise that we need to begin the process of reconciliation and renewal and restoration of all of which results in this little joy turning into this amazing bubbling joy for us and for God. It's easy to forget sometimes amidst the hustle and bustle of our lives that what we are called to do primarily is to rejoice for my being found, for your being found, and for the promise that God is still desperately searching and sweeping and looking for all God's lost and beloved children, invites us to join with him and won't quit until we're all found. And so, just for the practice of it, with repentance hearts, I invite you to pray the prayer of confession, which is based on Psalm 51. It's printed in your bulletin so you can take it home with you, just in case it, the need for it might pop up down the road. It'll appear on the screen. Let us pray with one voice. Have mercy upon us, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquities, and cleanse us from our sins. For we acknowledge our transgressions, and our sin is ever before us. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the place where you can offer your own personal things. And remember, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. May the almighty and merciful Lord grant us remission of all our sins, true repentance, admitment of life, and the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit. Amen.